Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 21. I want us to look at a familiar passage of Scripture today and, and really take a fresh look at it. Um, we're going to look at what is commonly known as the triumphal entry. Now, just in case you've been asleep for a long time and wondered what today's date is, it's not Palm Sunday, okay? I realize it, it usually gets preached at Palm Sunday, right before Easter. Uh, it, it's not Palm Sunday. You're not, you're not Rip Van Winkle or whatever, and you didn't fall asleep and then wake up in, in the spring. Um, we, it, it, this is the summer. This is, this is August. Um, but I think maybe some distance between us and Easter and Palm Sunday will do us some good as we look at this passage. I think it's so easy to look at these passages of Scripture, and when we come to them kind of in a seasonal emphasis, we think we know all about it, and we've heard it so many times, and we, we kind of check out almost on, on the message of the passage. So what we're going to see today, and I'm going to ask you to stand because we're going to read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew 21, 1 through 11. But what we're going to see today is Jesus' own declaration of his kingship. He's declaring it very boldly and strongly and humbly and what we're going to see is is some things about him it's going to show us some things about jesus the king it's also going to show us the response that's good to jesus the king okay so matthew 21 we'll start at verse 1 this is god's word now when they drew near to jerusalem and came to bethphage to the mount of olives then jesus sent two disciples saying to them Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for what we've already experienced today in singing praise songs to you and commissioning missionaries and whole family and seeing kids up here praising you. And Lord, standing at really almost like standing at attention to hear your word because it's from you and it's, it's not just the word of man. It's, it's, it's strong. It's powerful. It, it will never, ever fail and we thank you lord that you are behind that word you are the giver of your word and you have sustained it and you grow us by it and so i pray today that we would be in awe of you that your word would have its effect on us that you desire 
And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in this passage, we are seeing that Jesus is the king. He is declaring himself to be the king. The king. Capital K, king. Not just a king. The king. The king of kings. You could put it like this. If you want to have one sentence. Jesus is the king who came to accomplish salvation. Jesus is the king who came to accomplish salvation. The king who came so that we might be saved, that we could know God, that we could have fellowship with God, that we could have peace with God. Now, I told you we were looking at the triumphal entry. The Bible doesn't say that it's called the triumphal entry. We've named it that. But what is commonly known as the triumphal entry was really a very humble coronation of a king. Now, we aren't very familiar with kings and coronations. We've kind of got to go across the pond and look at England, and and then we see what is really a, a ceremonial kingship or queenship uh, the, the royalties the monarchs are are not as uh, powerful and full of authority as other kings in the past but we don't even grasp that much but let me take you back to uh, George the, the the fourth's coronation back in the 1820s he he entered Westminster uh, Hall at 10:30 in the morning on July 19th 1821. He was a half an hour late to his own coronation. And he, he joined this assembled court and they, they made a procession to Westminster Abbey. And it, when he arrived, it was 11 in the morning. They, they opened the, the west door and the coronation of the king began. And it lasted five hours. Five hours. No air conditioning probably. But afterwards, it wasn't over. They didn't all go home. The procession led back to Westminster Hall where the last coronation banquet in England was held. They don't do that anymore. They had a huge banquet. Now, you need some backstory on how lavish this was. And I've just uh, bottom line it for you. It cost, in today's currency, it would cost $9.5 million to put this event on. It was a big event. And it was, it was kind of to uh, compete against Napoleon, basically. Uh, after the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815, Great, Great Britain became the most powerful nation in Europe. And Napoleon's coronation as the Emperor of France on December 2nd, 1804, uh, had, a very, had been very lavish and very expensive and, and, and very big. And so King George determined that his would be better and bigger most expensive coronation ever held in Britain. But we make a big deal about rulers taking office. Here in America, when the president takes office, there's a you know, week of festivities going on and this big event. Up against the, the big deal we make about human coronations and human rulers taking office, here's Christ's coronation, which is very humble and relatively quiet, much more low-key, really no monetary cost involved beyond some palm branches and some, and some uh, cloaks and, uh, and borrowing someone's donkey. 
But, but that's not to say that it wasn't powerful and that it wasn't clear what it was. It was very powerful, very clear what it was. This is basically Jesus on a megaphone saying, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the king. The gospel of Matthew is all about the king of kings. So what we have here is Christ's entry into Jerusalem which is known in Psalm 48 is named as the city of the great king. The great king comes into his city. It was the center of Israel's life and hope. It was this entry into Jerusalem was the uh, high point, the crescendo of Christ's ministry on earth. It, it, It gets Holy Week rolling. It gets what is known as Passion Week rolling. We're not usually sweating during Passion Week, right? It got more cool. But this is the kickoff. And to get the picture of how prominent and how important this was, you just can open up your Bible and look at the four Gospels and see how much time and, and how many pages are committed to the cross and the whole Passion Week. Uh, 25 to 48% of the Gospels deal with this last week before the cross. So it's, it's big and it's prominent. And in Jerusalem is where Jesus would see, once again, the horrible effects of the depravity of humanity caused by sin. Here he would take upon himself the sins of the world, that he would taste death in our place, securing salvation at the cross. Here in Jerusalem, he fulfilled the purpose for which he came and started... It started nearby Bethany in the town of Bethphage. Look at verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. It was one small town over, less than a mile east of Jerusalem. It was essentially the, the final staging area before entering the city. Today it's called El Azariah. It's in honor of, named in honor of Lazarus, who was raised nearby. Bethphage means house of ripe, uh, excuse me, house of unripe figs. We got a fig tree in my backyard. It's full of figs right now, but some are not ripe. You don't want to eat those. Bethphage means house of unripe figs. By the way, Jesus will be dealing with the fig tree. Pretty soon in, this, in the flow of this context. But they are on the road. They've been on the road that went from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem. It was um, uphill. And nearing, as you near Jerusalem, the road goes past the backside of the Mount of Olives. You'd know that name. 2,600 feet above sea level. Uh, it was to the east of Jerusalem. It overlooked the temple area. The Garden of Gethsemane was near the foot of the Mount of Olives. The road passes through Bethany, where Jesus stayed during his final week, about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. So the road goes over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and into Jerusalem. And what we need to remember is that this was not a dress rehearsal. The kids had a dress rehearsal before they put on the Music Mania musical. This was not a dress rehearsal. This was not a a run-through. This was not a a scrimmage. A lot of football teams are scrimmaging right now in, in preparation for the season. There wouldn't be any do-overs. There wouldn't be any mulligans on this one. This is basically, this is it. He's going to see this to the finish. 
hope of the world is hanging in the balance. He's coming into Jerusalem for the final time. Now, we've set the stage for this passage, and if you think about it, we've got to now think of it more personally for us. If there is a king, and and there is, and, and if he came, and he did, the number one issue of life gets very, very simple. Very, very simple. And really, only two questions need to be answered. The first is this. What do I need to know about this king? And, secondly, how then should I live in light of what I know? So what do I need to know about this king, and how should I live in response? And in this passage today, that's what we're going to see. Several truths about the king that God wants us to know, and then several resulting actions that he wants us to take. That's the way it goes. It's, it's simple, and you could really break up the passage like this. Here's what the first five verses tell us about the king. Here's what the last six verses tell us how we should respond. Here's a good response to this king. So let's look first at verses 1 through 5. We've already looked at verse 1, so we'll, we'll jump to verse 2. But here's what the first five verses tell us about the king. Three things we need to know about, about Jesus, the king. The first thing is that he knows everything. This king knows everything. He is God. He is all-knowing. They draw near to Jerusalem, and he gives them instructions. Look at verse 2. Saying to them, he, he pulls out two disciples. We don't know who they are. He just gets two disciples, and he puts them on an errand. And he says to them, you go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Matthew's the only gospel writer that actually refers to two animals. He gives more details. He says, now untie those and bring them to me. So go, find, untie, bring. And if anyone asks you anything, say to them, the Lord needs them. So Jesus is calling himself the Lord. He's very aware. But here near the end, at the high point of his earthly ministry, he's becoming very, very clear about who he is. The Lord needs them. He's giving exact details. And the reason he's able to give exact detail, details is because he knows everything. Now, we all know know-it-alls, right? Don't name names, but you, don't point even, but you know know-it-alls. I have a friend who is in the helping profession, and he, he has a code name for a know-it-all. No offense to people with the last name Smith, but a Mr. Smith. The smartest man in the hemisphere, by his own humble opinion. But there are, there are know-it-alls all over the place. When I was a kid, I used to watch Rocky and Bullwinkle show. The Rocky and Bullwinkle show. And if you used to watch that, if you're as old as me or older, you might remember that there were many segments, I think about 50 of them, where Bullwinkle, the, the moose, would, be, would play the part of Mr. Know-it-all. And he would give you knowledge about how to get into the movies without a ticket, or how to tie your shoes, or how to bake a cake, or, or, or something else. He was Mr. Know-it-all, and he would always really not know. But he was acting like he knew it all. That's the deal with the know-it-all. They really don't know, and it, it comes out that they don't. Their ignorance shows. God has all authority. God knows everything. He, he is the Lord. In fact, the word that, that Jesus uses for himself in verse 3, uh, Kyrios, the Lord, has need of them. He is Uh, in total power and authority he's he's sovereign over all and and he's to be listened to and so 
He knows everything, this king. The second thing we see about this king is that he fulfills prophecy. Verse 4, and, and many, many scholars think that, that Jesus literally, literally said these next words, that he was telling them this is going to take place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, so that Jesus himself would have been speaking these words of Scripture to them. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The idea, though, that verse 4 says it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So the, so the prophet, hundreds of years before, had said something. God had spoken through the prophet, and now it's coming true. It's being fulfilled. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, but we've seen Jesus do this over and over and over again. Exactly. He fulfills prophecy. The king fulfills prophecy. What is spoken beforehand by God, those things come true, and he's the one that it circles around. It's no secret that God keeps his word. Some of us don't. None of us have. God keeps his word, and his timing in that keeping of the word is perfect, and so the fulfillment of prophecy is in perfect timing according to God's economy, according to God's timeline. I think of General Douglas MacArthur when he promised, I shall return, and, and he did. He kept his word. We don't often, but God always keeps his word. But this king, he knows everything, and he fulfills prophecy. He's connect, it's interconnected. The whole Bible from start to finish is, is like one, one uh, story of God redeeming fallen man, and it's through the person of Jesus Christ third thing we see about this king is that he deserves praise look with me again at verse five he deserves praise because of who he is not not just because what he did who he is not just because of what people said about him not just because that the the people praised him that's not why he deserves praise he deserves praise god deserves praise because of who he is in and of himself look at verse five Say to the daughter of Zion. Now, this is fulfilling Zechariah 9 9, but it starts with some words from Isaiah 62. That is why some translations will say, uh, as the prophet Zechariah said, or even as the prophet Isaiah said, because there's quotes from both. Look at Isaiah 62 11. Isaiah 62 11 is the first part. You know one of Matthew's favorite words is behold. He uses it all the time to draw our attention to something big. And here through an Old Testament quote, it's being used. So Isaiah 62, 11. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, here it is. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. There's more, by the way. But this is the part that is, being, that is being quoted here. There's more to that verse, but this is the part that's being quoted. Now you need to go to a Zechariah 9, Zechariah chapter 9, near the end of the Old Testament, and over at verse 9. And again, only part of the verse is being quoted. It doesn't mean that the other parts of these verses aren't applicable or valid. It, what, it, what I believe it means is that the whole verse should be taken in its entirety to drive the meaning of what Jesus is saying here and what is being said about Jesus here. In, in Hebrew um, 
context, oftentimes they would, someone would start what is called a ramesh, which is where they would begin a verse and it would be assumed that it would be completed by the people that were hearing it. Much like if I said to you, for God so loved the world, and you would finish it. You don't have to keep going, it's okay. <laughs> no one knows John three six seventeen, <laughs> So, it's really a good one. Look, look it up, it's a great verse. You need to read John three seventeen sometimes, but it's, it's great. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, the whole verse really should be taken here. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Notice how personal it is. It's being spoken to Israel. Your king. Yours. It's a king. He's coming to you. He's on his way. He's righteous. And he has salvation. Having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He deserves praise. Why? Because of who he is. Behold, your king comes. What's this king like? He is the righteous one. He is coming righteously. And he's also coming humbly because he's on a, on a donkey. That seems like a weird vehicle to us, doesn't it? And not a big donkey, a little donkey. One that had not even been broken yet. Probably why mommy was with the donkey. It would calm the donkey. But hey, the one who made the donkey was riding the donkey. So I think the donkey would be calm. This donkey had never been written on before. But in, in times of peace back then, rulers would, would ride donkeys. Signifying that they were bringing peace. That they were upholding peace. And so... He's the prince of peace. Of course he'd be riding on a donkey. Zechariah said he would. God said it. He's worthy of all praise. Psalm 48, 1 says, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. He's, he's worthy to be praised. He deserves praise. So that's what we learn of this king. There are other things we could point out, but this is the, these are the primary things we learn of this king in this passage. He knows everything. He fulfills prophecy, and he deserves praise. So what is a good response? What is a, a good response? How should we then live in response of knowing that? Well, the last six verses in this passage tell us that. It's a good response. Here, and it's very simple. Very simple. We'll go to verse 6. You notice what, what the disciples do. I, I, I see this as the hinge of this passage. The hinge between here's what is said about the king and now what you should do. It's big. In fact, I wish that this could be said of all of us that we would do what they did. What does it say? Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. The disciples went and did as Jesus told them to. I, I think that would be a really good motto for life. I'm going to do whatever Jesus tells me to do. Now to know what Jesus tells you to do, you need a Bible. You need a Bible because otherwise you might hear some instructions just in your head that you make up or get deceived by Satan or use the world's wisdom. You need to know what 
God says in his word. I, I love the fact that this passage is centered on what the Old Testament prophets had to say as God spoke through them, and this was being fulfilled. Those instructions given had been, had been talked about long before they were given here. The disciples went and did as Jesus told them. So wouldn't it be great if that was what we were known for? The second thing that, so the first thing, excuse me, is trust him and do what he says. Trust his judgment and do what he says. I mean, a lot of times we'll hear something from someone and think, I don't, I don't believe that, I don't want to do that. Or I don't trust that you can do that, so I'm not going to go and do that. But we can trust him and do what he says. It's a good response. It's a simple response. And it's a hard response. You can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life if you're a believer in Christ. Trust him and do what he says. That's the hinge of this passage. There's another thing, second thing, uh, which would be a good response. And you see it, it begins in verse 7. And it's what we know Palm Sunday for. It's what we know of the triumphal entry for. Because the peace-bringing king of Israel rides in and... And, and they put the cloaks on the donkey. And he sits on the cloaks. He doesn't sit on both animals, doesn't ride them, you know, straddle both and ride in or anything like that. He, he's on the, the small animal and he, he sits down. Now, cloaks symbolize submission. Putting your cloak down for a ruler would be, we are submitting to you. We are yielding to you. We're going to follow you. And then people, verse 8, they, they, it says most of the crowd did this. So, by the way, think about the, the scene in Jerusalem at this point. It, it was said back in that day that at Passover time, over 260,000 Passover lambs were killed. And in that day, you could, use, you could use one lamb for about 10 people. So there were upwards to 2 million people crowding the city of Jerusalem. It was huge. And there were a lot of people around. This was not a small crowd. This was not a closed crop shot where you, you, you make people think there were a lot of people there. Maybe you see on the news, a big crowd, and then you pan out and there's no one there. No, this was uh, droves of people all around, and it says that most of them spread their cloaks on the road, so they're, sub they're, they're saying, we want to submit to this king, and others cut branches from the trees and laid them down. And these wouldn't have been huge, you know, palm branches. I cut some branches off my trees yesterday at my house and they were just little twigs by the time I got done with them and I actually threw them on the ground too um, but they're putting them on the ground because it's signifying victory palm branches on the ground would signify victory it says that most of the crowd did this the crowd would have been comprised of pilgrims going to Jerusalem and people from Jerusalem and they're beginning to honor him and then they they start to say familiar words. The crowd that went before him, verse 9, and, and, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
son of David, signifying that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited one. He's, they're saying Hosanna. It means save. It literally meant save us. And it came to mean praise you. And so save us and, and praise you, praise be to you. And they're crying these things out. And it says that the crowds did this. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oftentimes it's what would be said to a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem to worship. Hosanna in the highest. There's a praise to God. So the second thing we should do is praise him for what he has done. Don't just trust him and do what he says, but then praise him sincerely from your heart for what he has done. He gives salvation. He brings peace. The peace-bringing king of Israel is riding into town. They're throwing their cloaks down. They're putting palm branches and, and branches of trees in the road. They're expressing their hope of the Messiah coming. He's riding on a donkey. You know, there's been a lot written in recent years about overpraising a certain group of our population. Praising one group too much. I've asked the kids to close their ears before when I'm preaching, but close your ears really quick, kids. I gotta tell your parents something. There's been a lot written about overpraising kids. Praising kids way too much. Okay, it's okay, kids. It's, my, it's our sign language. Um, look, kids should be praised. Kids should be built up. But there are some parents who have overdo it to the extent of they praise them for everything, even stuff they do wrong. It's, it got, it's gotten out of balance. But you can't praise Jesus too much. You can't overpraise Jesus. You could praise him and praise him and praise him and praise him and think, wow, whew, I praised him a lot. No, you, you barely scratched the surface. You can't overpraise Jesus. Praise him for what he's done. And one more thing. One more thing. And by the way, uh, before I get to that, I want to tell you, if, if you ever get an email from me, whatever I put at the very, very end after my name, you know, the signature line, I mean it. Not just filler. Even when I, even, even when I, when I, when I, before my name, I put in Christ, which is so common. But it's a reminder to me that I am in Christ by his doing. Wow, that's huge. But then I say, all, this is my, my usual one. I have one that says Jesus is Lord, which I absolutely believe. And the other one is, all praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. I believe that with all my heart. I want people to know that. I want total strangers to know that. I want to praise him for what he has done, and I want others to hear. That's what the crowds were doing. But the third thing is that we need to tell the whole truth about him. We need to tell the whole truth about this king. Look at verse 11. Verse 10, excuse me. They enter Jerusalem, and the whole city is stirred up. There was only one other time that it tells us that the whole city was stirred up as when he was born. 
in Matthew chapter 2, I think in verse 3 maybe, but I, I don't remember. But he, he, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. And they're asking this question, who is this? Now, some may not have known. And some may just have been going, wow. Like, like who is this really? But listen to the crowd's answer. I've read this answer for many, many years, and I was okay with it. I'm not anymore. I was okay with it for a long time. I read it going, yeah, that's the truth. Here's what the, the crowds said. This is the prophet Jesus. That's fair enough, right? It means a prophet. He is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And I thought, well, yeah, that's truthful. It is. But Nazareth was not a place you wanted to be from. And really, it was just a prophet? I think they sold Jesus short. I think they were, they were about to send him down the river soon. Remember, remember they're, they're, now they're calling him the king here, right? Well, then it gets to the point where things are really getting bad. And, and, and who was it? Um, I can't remember now. But one of the rulers said... Uh, Shall I crucify your king? And the religious leaders of the Jews said, We have no king but Caesar. So they rejected their king. But here they're not telling the whole truth about Jesus. Let's just say that that Michael Jordan walks in the room right now. You probably wouldn't recognize him from his playing days. He's bigger now. But let's just say, well, you recognize him from the commercials he's on. But he walks in the room right now, and and, and people say, "Who, Who is that? And, and, and someone tells you, well, just some basketball player. Really? Really? Just some basketball player, right? No. The second greatest NBA player of all time makes to Kobe Bryant. Let's just say, or, or what about this? What if Billy Graham walks in right now? And someone says, who, who is that? He looks familiar. Oh, just some Christian guy. He kind of preaches every once in a while. Really? That's not the whole story. He's preached to millions upon millions of people. He's preached the gospel to millions. I can't say that. Tell the whole truth about Jesus. The prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, that's true. But let me translate. Here's what this means. Just your average Yahoo who thinks he's something and he's from over there, the other side of the tracks. Just a prophet? No. Just like Jesus said, more than a prophet. More than a prophet. In, what they could have said is uh, Zechariah 9 9. Him. Um, the Messiah. Uh, or what he said about himself, the Lord. You know, at the coronation of a king, everyone gets caught up in the hoopla. You know, if you, you may not even like, you might, let's say you're at a coronation of a king. Let's just say you're at the president's inauguration this coming next January. Is that when it happens? Of course. And let's just say whoever gets voted in, you don't really like him. And you might not agree with his policies. But, but you shout for him and, and you cheer because it's the president. And so you're excited with the crowd. Well, here is the perfect example of useless enthusiasm. They were pretenders. They got caught up, but never came to truly know him. Now, I'm sure some did. Most did. 
the crowd said, well, he's the prophet, just a local guy from lowly Nazareth. They didn't get it. They went part way but missed the treasure of who Jesus really is. There is the reality of a coming king. A king is coming. There's the promise. Behold, your king is coming to you. It's very personal, so we need to take it personally. Well, you say, wait, 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 it already happened. Yes, but there is the promise of a coming king. He's coming again. In fact, if you go back to one of the verses we read, if you go back to verse Isaiah 62, verse 11, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, your, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. The second time he comes will be with reference to judgment. He comes the first time as the prince of peace. Last week, I loved the passage that was read during one of the, the messages, and it was in Revelation 19. Here's a picture of the coming king. Verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and is ri- in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called, the Word of God. And the armies of, the he- of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the king. That's the coming king. And this coming king came not just for Israel, but for the nations. I don't know if you know it, but when Queen Elizabeth II was was asked at her coronation in 1953, not just if she would rule England, she said, it said, will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and the, Un- the Union of South Africa and Pakistan and Ceylon and of your possessions and of their territories to any of them belonging or pertaining according to their respective laws and customs. She, she um, was simultaneously crowned as sovereign over multiple nations. Jesus, sovereign over all nations. In fact, you go back to Zechariah chapter 9 where this passage is rooted. Verse 10. So, so he's coming righteous and having salvation and humble and mounted on a donkey. And then I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He came for the nations. He is coming again, and his kingship then will look different than it did when he entered Jerusalem. Does it strike a chord with you at all? Does it strike a chord that there is a coming king who will bring a reward with him for those who, have, of, who came to him by faith, the reward of eternal life with him forever, those who rejected him and, and did not believe uh, the reward of separation from him in hell forever there is a king he's a real king and he has all authority and he is coming back and he gives salvation and he brings peace to needy souls that's the king I serve and I serve him very imperfectly 
But my desire is to trust that king and to obey that king and to praise that king and to speak the truth about him. We've got to speak the whole truth about Jesus. Well, who's Jesus to you? Well, he's a good guy. We've got to tell the whole truth about Jesus Christ and what he has done in our life. Tell people how he picked you up off the ground you were as low as you could go or that you you were deluded and and thinking you knew it all but he saved you from your sins and he saved you from an eternity in hell tell people about him one last question it's the most important one is jesus your king is he your king you say well i know jesus so i guess he's my king no Maybe in name. We're not talking ceremonial kings here. We're talking real kings. Does he have free reign over your whole life? Is your heart truly Christ's home? My prayer is that our obedience shifts from a forced march to becoming a glad surrender to the king, a a yielding uh, from a homework assignment to a get to or want to. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you are the king, that we are your subjects, and that we, it's very simple for us. We, we, need, to, we need to trust you with our whole life. We want you to be our king. Lord, we want your joy to pour out into our lives, that, we, that it would be our joy to serve you that we would say to you as you wish whatever you want your will be done that's our desire lord that we that we lay before you now acknowledging you as king